Okay, here we go. Let's go Advent 2. You're the best. Raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. So uh, remember, you know, this Advent season, so often it, gets a, it, can, it can get a little bit grim. It shouldn't be, though, for you. This is all good news. So raise your heads, you know, raise your hands, proper posture to meet the Lord. Um, raise your hands because your redemption is, is, is drawing near. Luke 21, 28. Lord God, Heavenly Father, who through your Son has revealed to us that heaven and earth shall pass away, we beg you to keep us steadfast in your word and always in the true faith. Graciously guard us from all sin, preserve us from temptation, so that our hearts may not be overcharged with the cares of this life, but at all times in watchfulness and prayer we await the return of your Son and joyfully cherish the expectation of eternal salvation. Through your Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. So that's always a long prayer. That always comes on the second week. Don't be overcharged. Yeah, I do get the sense that you're a little bit stretched thin here at the beginning of the holidays. So, uh, you know, calm yourselves. Try to take some time. If you put some money in the basket, then um, if you put money in the basket, it'll go to Christmas sharing. You know, Carol and all others, but I mean chiefly Carol, who lives here virtually for most of November and December, uh, getting that ready. It's a great, great thing. Uh, we still need to buy a few things. We always need clothes and gloves and stuff like that. So if you toss a little money in, uh, they'll pick up the things toward the end. If you can help this week, especially I know that Tuesday morning where they need people to pick things up, uh, that's always a, a busy time. If you can help during the week, that would be fantastic. So, and, sorry, go. Just need people. Just need people. Just need people to kind of load things and unload them. Is that right? When you get here, right, good. How are you doing for translators? Going to be okay? Yeah. Primarily Spanish this year? I, that 40% of them we have a few Turkish, a few Persian. So if you speak Turkish or Persian. <laughs> Nepali. Kurdish. Not always, is it? Only in the, oh, yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's not. You're right. All right, good deal. Um, I'm gonna. We gotta check that later. Is that true? Is that true? We gotta check later. All right, good. All right, here you go. So you got the uh, everything else good? Anything else? Questions about anything? Uh, voters meeting at 12:30. You know, pop around for that. Shouldn't be terribly long, but we wanted to make sure that everybody had a chance to have enough time and not lose the Bible study hour because next week we do lose it for Martha Fest. So, you know, um, you know, come back for that. That should be fun. So, next two weeks. 20, 20 seconds. Yeah, sorry. Forget Martha Fest for next week. Keep it a secret. Don't tell Martha. It's going to be great. All right. Martha Fest in two weeks. Martha Palooza does come. That's right. All right. It's going to be great. Wow, you had 50? That's really good. So Christmas caroling yesterday by Sunday school. I know Pastor Nelson is virtually living here right now with all the things he's got going. Um, every time I came in, he was still here, and I'm, you know, it was very strange. But if you had 50 at the, con the convalescent center, is a, that's really a great thing. You know, it's, it's really good for everybody who does it. It's good for them. It's good for us. So that's really good that you had 50 kids. Ooh, that's really good. So well done. That's nice. All right, anything else? as you're kind of going for it. Remember on uh, 
remember, you know, come for pizza on Wednesday at 6. I mean, there's free dinner. Just show up and have dinner between 6 and 7 and then come for prayers. About a half an hour and then, you know, it'll give you a chance to calm down just a little bit through the years. Okay, everything else good? All right, you had the text. Uh, if you have an outline, I'm going to just pop back to 4 where the text is. These seven gifts of the Spirit and how we talk about them. Now, you notice that text was in for today. Um, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, a branch from the root shall bear fruit. So, you know, there's Jesse's line, you know, David, the king, and all the rest, Israel. You know, a stump, a branch, uh, fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord rests upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge, and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. So there you go. Um, and then last week, we just talked about this a little bit. These aren't uh, your gifts directly, but they are gifts given to Jesus. So it works like this. The Holy Spirit gives you Jesus, and then Jesus gives himself to you wholly, and you all these gifts. But you always live in that sort of secondarily. Okay. And then I sort of shoot you to number seven. Um, first up, we, we sort of, I jumbled the list a little bit because the lists are jumbled themselves in Scripture. The first one is... Um, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. Now, it's really interesting. The word in Hebrew for delight has uh, a bunch of different meanings. It's a bit, it's one of those words that's very rich. It can actually mean to smell, which if you just translate that indirectly, it doesn't really work. You know, his smell shall be in the fear of the Lord. But it's sort of this sensory permeating thing. When they translated the Hebrew into Greek, it's very interesting. Um, they translated it to satisfaction or his fulfillment, or his fullness. So, um, you know, his, his fullness. So you, you, kind of, you, can, you kind of get all parts of it. The Hebrews are very earthy. You know, they're, they're, they're fleshly kind of people. So they talk about it as smell. You know, the smell permeates everything. You can think of incense where you can smell it everywhere. It's there before you come. It's there after you leave. You know, the Greeks are very, you know, thoughtful. Everything was about, and you chase it all the way to Plato, where material things don't work anymore. You know, but it's interesting that between the two languages, you get this full thing of everything that you are, sort of body and soul, is filled up and perfected. So actually, delight is a good word for that. So your delight is in the fear of the Lord. Now, every word can work two ways. So you listen to the text for Advent, Jesus is coming back. For a Christian, you know, the proper posture is to receive him, head up, arms open. I'll take whatever you've got. But um, there's also those who have been in rejection of him who sort of cover themselves and dread the fact that he's coming. So the same Jesus, and you know this, I've talked about this before, in medieval art, for example, you have Jesus who comes, you see him coming a second time, he has a sword in one hand and a flower in the other. You know, the flower is the sign of resurrection or life. So, you know, you'll have him that way. Uh, he'd love to have you resurrected. If you won't have him that way, then you'll have him another way. So the same Jesus, you know, can either be judged for your good or judged for bad. It's like the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is the greatest possible thing for you. But then also we get the text that it's the sort of thing that can injure you if you don't, you know, use it wisely. So kind of tuck that away, that everything can be taken two ways. If it's taken as a gift and a blessing, you know, don't have any other gods. If it's okay, that's great. It's John the Baptizer. You know, repent. And when people repent, everything is great. But if you won't, you know, if you force Jesus to be your enemy, if you force him to be your enemy, then it doesn't go so well. Um, that's a battle that you'll lose. But there's no point in even having that battle. The best thing is just to receive his gifts. Um, and so for you, 
the fear becomes the word of reverence. So your delight, if you translate it this way, your delight, everything that you are, your fullness, your satisfaction, your calm heart, everything you've got, your delight is in being, is in being reverent toward or honoring of or receiving Jesus. You know? So if you ask yourself, how can I still my restless heart? The answer is to have Jesus just the way he gives himself. And the Pharisees this morning, they want to have him in a different way. If, you know, Jesus lets himself be bent and twisted. The ultimate, the ultimate proof of that is the cross, where you know, he even lets himself be killed. This great mystery of how God lets himself die. Very strange stuff, right? So you can resist him and you can reject him. You can push him away, but not forever. Right? But, you know, sort of put that aside. That's not the primary thing. The primary thing is you have this delight, this fullness, this satisfaction in honoring God. So, this great gift. Um, I give you then reverence as humility. And humility um, simply means to remember the order of things. I gave you a little thing um, that I gave to new members yesterday. Things kind of overlap for me. Um, Kind of the mystery of, it's the thing that has this on it, just the one page with the red. You know, the great mystery of humility is you can't get it by reaching for it. You know, normally we're very goal-directed. That's what we want. We aim at it. We grab it. Unfortunately, um, humility is a bit of a head fake. You can't get humility by grabbing for humility. And yet it's the chief virtue. You know, pride is the chief sin. Humility, which then goes to discipline and obedience, is, 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 you know, the chief gift, the chief virtue. Why? So how, how is it that you become humble? I just sort of, this is from something else, but it works the same way. You remember. You think. You say, I'm a sinner. I'm dead. Jesus forgives me. I'm alive. I, everything I have comes from him. You know, not my own life. The lives of those around me. My church. My job. Um... You know, everything I have comes from God. You think about that. This is the reason why you say your prayers in the morning and have a devotion. Say your prayers at night and, and, and remember God who gives you all things. It's why you come to church every week. One of the primary reasons is to keep you humble. How does it work? You're reminded of the fact that you're dead unless God makes you alive. It's a thing to be grateful for. You're reminded that your spouse, your kids, this is all first article stuff, your job, everything you've got, your redemption, the Holy Spirit, all you've got is a gift. So you start by, if you, if you want to be humble, you don't aim at being humble. You begin to remember what your circumstance is. I was dead, now I'm alive. When you do that, you become grateful. And, you know, sometimes we get hard-hearted, but basically a good review of the gifts you've been given. And frankly, you know, we've been given so much. We have been given so, so much. You know, you and I, we have marvelous lives. doesn't mean we don't have troubles, but we really have remarkably, remarkably good lives. We don't, we don't lack for the things that most people in many parts of the world lack for. Most of all, we have the church. You know, we have this great freedom, even though, you know, things are... I, I, did, I was a little stunned that the A for Atheist was up next to the Christmas tree in Daly Plaza. Has anybody seen it? I just, I'm sort of, I'm sort of, uh, I'm not angered by it. I'm just, I'm just a little surprised. I mean, if they have National Atheist Day, they can put an A up on that day. But do you have to counter argument, really? But you know. Well, that's all. They've already got a Christmas tree, so be happy with what you've got over there. You don't be one of those oppressive kind of Christmas wishes, okay? Yeah, you do. So, 
So there you go. So you remember the gifts you've been given. That makes you grateful. And when you're grateful, and to be grateful at, at bottom, to be grateful is to know you couldn't do it on your own. To be grateful is to be indebted to somebody else. Couldn't do it without you, Bev. Love you. Couldn't do it without you. I mean, that's how Tom talks every day. Bev, I love you. This is what keeps him humble around the house. Isn't this true, Bev? Really? Oh. <laughs> so, um, you know, that's the way life's meant to be. If you remember the gifts that God is always giving you, um, then you remember how the order goes. I'm nothing without being given to, you know. Um, but I only live because Christ resurrects me. So that means the order is Christ is at number one point and I'm at number two point, right? Or whenever I get you know, a little too big for my britches, I kind of remember that it's not me, but Christ who lives in me, Galatians 2.20. This is Adam in the garden, right? Everything is great until he is no longer grateful for all the gifts he's been given. And then uh, you know, he wanders away. So this is point number eight. Since we have these promises, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit. And then, look at this, bring holiness to completion in reverence toward God, in fear toward God. So, you know, what, a lot of what you're doing here on Sunday morning is rehearsing your lines, retelling your story. One of the ways that you can diagnose what's gone wrong with the church is that we've lost our story. We, we think sometimes our story is about us. Our story is not about us at all. And that's why we read the lectionary, that's why we have the colors, that's why we change the seasons, that's why we sing, that's why we do memory work, because we rehearse our story over and over again. If you don't rehearse it, you will lose it. It's true for any skill. You know, if you don't rehearse it, you will lose it. So we come here, one of the really great reasons to come to church every week, all the time, is you rehearse this and it puts your life in order. When your life is in order, then your life is satisfying. When you understand how the world works, you can relax into it. Even though there'll be trouble, you can relax into it and enjoy the gifts you've been given, and you can stand together through painful times. And this is, I mean, that's how it works. But you need to see reality for that. You know, to see reality. And that's, that's what, that's what humility, humility is. It's recognizing the reality and being grateful for it. Okay? Um, you know, if you run against that, you know, what comes is pride. Um, and uh, I've given you a little bit of a sheet. I gave you this from, uh, did you have this still? Did you grab one of those? Um, I, I didn't know about giving it to you or not, uh, partly because it's from a Catholic source. But, you know, that doesn't, that's not so much about that. But one of the things is about this, um, if you really start to have a good look at yourself, it can be really, really depressing. And, and what's interesting about, uh, in the tradition, and Luther was up against this, and they probably overreacted to it, there were all these lists of virtues and sins and what you had to do and how you confess. And what happened is when that kind of got, that, that became such a burden that Lutherans sort of jettisoned all that. Well, the problem with that is then it makes it a little harder to understand our own lives. So I give you this only to give you a taste of how you can think about yourself, but I would just warn you to be careful because if you dig too deeply, especially if you're on your own, and not under the care of another person, and I mean that for myself too, it can just be depressing. Because you, th you, can, you can dig so deep that you'll never get out. So, I mean, just, just listen to this. I mean, this is one, of the, this is one way to talk about it. Um, let's think about our habitual voluntary sins. These can be classified, so already you've got a flowchart, right? Under various forms. So here's some of your sins. Various forms of egoism, 
Another word for pride, right? Of me first. Proud, arrogant, self-sufficient, vain egoism, and sensual, overly sensitive, lazy, indolent egoism. So just in case you wanted to know, there's at least eight different kinds. <laughs> you can go home and think about yourself today and you know, find yourself on the chart. But now, you know, just look at this. And sometimes, one of the sadnesses is, um, with the loss of private confession, you remember for Lutherans, um, the Catholics said about the Lutherans, about Luther and the Lutherans, pff, one of your problems is you never go to private confession anymore. And the Lutherans responded in the Augsburg Confession saying, hey, we go to private confession more than you do, which of course is always how you win an argument. <laughs> I do not, you do too, I do not, you do too. So, I mean, then they said, but of course, very quickly on, that got lost because, um, you know, this, this, this great comment of Pope Francis from a week ago or two weeks ago where he said, you know, the confessional isn't meant to be a torture chamber. Well, it was very much a torture chamber for people. They came and they were pummeled and taxed and penalized and beaten down and made, made to feel um, guilty. When in fact, what, you know, my goal when anybody who comes to private confession is to leave them with a smile on their face. I mean, that's really what confession is about, that you understand that the Lord takes away your sins and the only way they can hurt you is if you take them back. In a very literal way, when you come to the Eucharist today, you know, if you could see, if you could see all things, inside that rail you would see these giant mounds of horrible, sinful things that people have left behind. You know, it's litter. It's, it, you know, it's pollution. It's all left there at the altar. The notion is that you walk away from the altar and you're completely clean. And the only way that can hurt you is if you go back and, you, you go back and take it. Don't do that. You leave all your sins there, right? The pro one of the problems for us, though, is because we abandon these lists, we never learn to confess very well. When we don't learn to confess very well, we don't see the damage that we do to ourselves and to each other. We don't recognize sinfulness as sin. So, I mean, just take a look here. Now, you've got to be careful with this because immediately, I will warn you in advance, the danger with a list like this, there's two dangers at least. One is you start thinking about somebody else. I'm thinking, whoa, this is a great description of... Right? That's one problem. So you're supposed to think about yourself and you're immediately like, oh yeah, that, I know, I, holy cow, it looks like their resume, right? Um, you know, you think about somebody else, or the other thing is you just get horribly depressed. So to sins of pride belong our desires to cut a figure, right? And you just kind of think about this. It doesn't have to be, you know, you know our strategy is to push ourselves forward. Ostentation, lying, trifling excuses exaggerations, indiscretions intended to show that we know more than we're telling, right? Refusals to admit our faults, stubbornness, obstinacy, impatience, ruffled self-love, you, you know, you get a little too tender, voluntary anxiety, create some chaos so you can solve it, right? Create some chaos and get everybody else off balance and then, you know, or worry about things you actually don't need to worry about. Very interesting. Harshness in words, in judgments. Lack of charity, either through frivolity or through a sentiment of partiality. So you're not fair, right? I mean, that's a, that's a pretty good, and when you come to confession, it's very easy to say, you know, I'm a bit too harsh. I mean, people always think confession is such this giant thing where you have to really, you know, 
you know, you have to have really done some damage. I mean, even being a bit too harsh is really something. And, and normally what's supposed to happen is your confessor is to say to you, well, how can we, how can we get past that? You know, Jesus forgives that, but how, how can tomorrow be less harsh than today? Or, you, you know, people who tend to exaggerate about themselves. Well, why is that? You know, what's behind that? You know, or when we, even it can be positive things too, like we um, lose our sense of dependence on Christ. You know, we sort of, I mean, arrogance goes to, I'm self-sufficient. I mean, the truth is nobody's self-sufficient. Not in, not, in a, not in a scriptural way of understanding our lives. You know, so those are, that's a very honest confession. Um, you know, this is, so, you know, so just sort of put that aside. Now take the other side. Sins of sensuality include all that is related to, now sensuality, we, in English, we often go to sex right away, but really sensuality has to do with things that would make us feel better in a way that disguises what we're really meant for. So sloth, for example, right? I mean, just, just lazy, you know? Let somebody else do it. Negligence, you, know, you can't see the poor, you can't see the cold. Gluttony, you know, everything for me, nothing for you. Excessive affection, what happens with this excessive affection is that something becomes God other than God. Uncontrolled imagination, I mean, really the lack of discipline. You know, the, the, the inability to stop obsessing about how somebody hurt you, right? You wake up every morning, it's the first thing you think of. And we talked about that all last year, about how to just notice that and then set that aside as you redirect your focus onto Christ. Random reading, daydreams, weakness of will. I mean, this gets a little... I'm not going to confess random reading, okay? <laughs> I mean, because I'm really going to click on that and read it. Hey... There's some stuff on Wonderwall that I need to know, okay? <laughs> Only you laugh who know what Wonderwall is. Yeah, see, that's telling. We have a video of this. We know what's going on. Discouragement. I mean, I don't know if you think about this, but just to constantly be discouraged about yourself, about your kids, about your job, about your life, it's sinful. Because that's the life that the Lord has given you and is trying to rehabilitate. Jealousy and envy, <laughs> right? I wish I had what he had. The omission of the good that we should do, resistance to grace. This is very interesting. Fear of goodness. Because in some sense, if we keep the party line, if we keep things the way they are, we can complain about them. And in some ways, many of us are built for the status quo. It's very difficult. I mean, Advent is difficult. This rearrangement that John comes and says, you know, mountains should come down and valleys should come up and everybody should get baptized and everybody should repent, bear fruits that befit repentance, and then the soldiers come and he says, you got two cloaks, give one cloak away. You know, I mean, that's very, the status quo sometimes just makes us feel better. We don't have to work very hard toward what's good, right? So, I mean, you can, you can sort of just, you know, just quickly we'll go through this. Let's look at our faults, our predispositions. What a sad sight. Our intellect is frivolous and capable of prolonged attention. I mean, 140 characters. It judges too quickly, too severe, severely. Um, you know, it's a superficial and narrow. No one has any sense except us and our friends. Right? One of the interesting things is the, the, the new pope threw everybody off when he said, I never trust my first instinct which is very un-American in a sense. Americans, we respect people who have the first instinct and trust it. He's a Jesuit, so he's suspicious of what's in them. 
And the Jesuit notion of discernment means that you don't trust anything, even yourself. So it was very interesting where he said, I almost never go with my first thought when I come to a situation. People were all perplexed by that because it doesn't seem much like leadership. But in reality, it is a self-awareness and then sort of a communal or a collective, you know, a communal or a collective understanding of what might be best. You value other people's opinions. Our will is feeble, acting by fits and starts. We're good at something this week, we're not good at it next week. Now it's weak, yielding to evil. Now it's vain, right? Now it's obstinate, now it's hard, now it's capricious, now it's intemperate. Man, I mean, this is depressing as heck. Our imagination reveals again, you know, arouses anger, indignation, that great thing from Kleining about how we replay the evils over and over. We get angrier and angrier in our imagination. It gets worse and worse. Unconfessed sin, it just, it just swirls until it possesses us. Discouragement, sadness, melancholy, right? It exaggerates everything, making us live in a fanciful and unreal world. One of the reasons you come to church every week, one of the reasons you say your prayers every day, is so that the world becomes real again. When the world is your construct, it is not the world. Okay? There's a reality beyond you. My imagination is not the limit of God's creative act. I do not define the world. The world is defined, no matter what the last 300 years of philosophy has said, the world is defined without us. There is a world in which we live, right? We didn't make it, we won't end it. The goal is to be consonant with the mind of God who made it, who set it in motion, right? So, um, I mean, you could just read this. I mean, it gets depressing by the time you get to the end because although what you can say, you know, we're obtuse, we're cold, we're incapable of generous self-giving, we're overly passionate, we make a tragedy out of anything that happens to us. We allow our emotions to be extreme in their manifestations, indiscreet in their demands, badly controlled or uncontrolled. This is a guy who's been to confession a lot. I mean, it really is. These are the sort of, these are the sort of slivers of things when you can tell the difference between jealousy and envy. Or when you can say, my emotions sometimes are extreme, sometimes it's indiscreet the way I demand things, sometimes I'm badly controlled, sometimes I can't control anything at all. That's a great confession. We act like spoiled children. This is, I mean, a great confession is to go to confession. You know how confession goes. You say, you know, my worship and prayers have faltered. Um, you know, you know I, what particularly troubles me is I act like a spoiled child. That is a great confession. I mean, that just says a lot about yourself. You know, if it's true, confess it. Such is the sad spectacle of the self without God. And that exactly is the definition of pride. That's exactly what breaks the first commandment. That's exactly what defiles the Our Father. You understand, right, that the first command, the commandments line up with the Lord's Prayer. Don't have any other gods. Our Father, right? Use the name. Hallowed be your name. Go to church, thy kingdom come. I mean, there's not, this story isn't very complicated. It's just said in a bunch of different ways. Sad is the spectacle of self without God. Of the self that's not risen again or been refashioned in the image of Christ, transformed by grace and configured by the Lord Jesus. So, you know, just one example. That can be a bit, um, you know, if I went to confession and somebody worked me over like that, you know, it would be hard to go to church again for a while. 
Um, you just need part of that. But I would, I would confess to you, we say to ourselves so easily sometimes, see, pride is the, is, the, is the deadliest of the deadly sins because pride dislodges God. It just flips the universe. I'm number one, God's number two. Maybe I believe in him, maybe I won't. If I do believe in him, I'll have him the way I want him. Pride is the thing that turns the universe upside down. It's the ultimate disorder, right? Confession puts it right back round. Humility puts it right back down. Pride has me at point number one. Humility is at God point, at point number one. It's the first commandment. It's the first thing said in the Lord's Prayer. It's the first thing said by John the Baptizer. It's the first thing that Jesus always says. You know, my Heavenly Father, I've come that to deliver my Heavenly Father. Right? That's, that's the whole point. So it's chief among these gifts. Um, if you just kind of look at 12-ish, um, pride resists and rejects anything that would rise above it, right? I've sort of said everything that, um, I've sort of said everything that I've said here. That pride kind of twists things up, it modifies things, it disorders things, um, it makes things upside down. So 13, and maybe I can say it this way, the easiest way I can say is pride makes you sick. You know, your sins make you sick. It's, it's so interesting. We maybe don't talk that way enough, but your sins actually make you sick. Pride makes you sick. Um, it keeps us from being as productive as we might be. It paralyzes us. It can disfigure us. You know, it makes us complacent about our shortcomings. We don't want to confess them or we won't admit to them. We can be buoyed up by our haughtiness. We can be exposed to evil, you know, by our sins. I mean, pride just goes, it just goes wrong in so many ways. We don't get better at life. We don't make progress in virtue. We don't live in generosity or mercy. Because why? Because you know what? Frankly, you don't matter to me. I mean, when I'm prideful, basically what I'm saying is you actually don't matter. I'm actually also saying that God doesn't matter. I mean, pride really says you, you don't matter as much as I matter. God, you don't matter as much as I matter. All of you, you don't matter as much as I matter. I matter most. That's pride. I'm at point number one. It's the sin of Adam. There he is in the garden, and the Lord says, you can do this and this, but don't touch that because that will really hurt you. So what do you do? You touch that thing, and the world goes to ashes. Um, in some sense, then, we become subhuman. And this is what Luther means when he says we get curved in upon ourselves. You remember his great, Luther's great expression for sinfulness is that our eyes pop down and all we can look is ourselves. We walk through the world like this, we can neither see God nor our neighbor. That's what sin does to us. It just makes us, I'm the only thing that matters. If I happen to bump into you, you know, I'll use you as you suit me, but otherwise you don't matter. It's a horrible thing to just keep talking about it. Now, turn the page, 14. What happens then is when the Lord shows up for Advent, and suddenly you realize, you know, you've been caught out and all the facts are against you. When the Lord shows up and you're not at point number one, then you do live in dread. And that, you know, the great, the great notion of a second coming is that when everything gets to be clear, everybody can see it at once, all the lines are drawn, everybody knows what's going on, and any resistance is feeble. I mean, you, you won't be convincing anybody you know, at the second coming, you won't be convincing anybody that the world is anything other than it really, really is. Right? There'll be this great reckoning. Now, for those who have been forgiven and all along been struggling to have Jesus, been struggling to be a point number two, as difficult as it is for those who have it, it'll be, the, the second coming will be this great relief. It'll be, if you can imagine, you know, all the pridefulness sucked out of you 
and living with what remains, that's what it's going to be like. It will be, you know, it will be like, you know, it, it just, it, it's hard to, it, it's like if every ill was just pulled out of you. There's nothing to fear in that. Unless, of course, you've said no to it. And the interesting thing is gifts can always be resisted. You can say no to it if you want, but then you're on your own. This is the C.S. Lewis thing that the door to hell is locked from the inside, you know? I mean, you're, if you're in hell, it's because, you know, you put yourself there and locked yourself in. So, um, when you see what the dread looks like, it's surprising. You know, it's, it's so basic that it's there in the Magnificat. In the, in, the, in, the, in the rejoicing in the Incarnation, in the child given to Mary, the Lord has shown the strength of his arm. Boom. This is, we always say this, but we don't pay attention to it. He has scattered the proud. Think about what scattered means. It means you've lost your house, you've lost your family, you've lost your colleagues, you've lost your community. You are scattered to the wind. You're on your own, which is what you said you always really wanted anyway. I mean, you get, I mean, hell is when God lets you have your way forever. Like you've always said, I want to be, I want to be self-sufficient, I want to be number one, I want to be in charge of things, I want to be captain of my own fate, I want to determine the world. I, I believe this very strongly that I am the master of my life. Hell is when, when God says to you, okay. You know, so often we think about this as sort of a vindictive act that God does to you. It can be very much described as the opposite. That God just simply lets you have your way. You want to live like that? Okay. That's a miserable, miserable thing. Look at this. He scatters the proud in the imagination of their hearts. I imagine that I'm at point number one. I imagine that God's at point number two. I imagine that all of you are at point number three or somewhere farther down the list. He has put down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of low degree. You see that? He turns it back right side up. Whoop. And so, um, you know, if you take the lesser gods, you're afraid and you realize you've wrecked it. But um, if not, life is good. At 15, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Right? God opposes the, 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 the proud, gives grace to the humble. Or this is terribly important. You know, the best thing I've learned in 2013. You know, you, you learn these things that you carry with you forever. The law always accuses. So right now, if I think about God, I think about the ways that I've come up short. It's very clear I've come up short in so many ways. So I'm always accused by God's holiness. God's holy and I'm not. The law always accuses. However, it doesn't condemn me. So the reality no longer pinches. That's on Christ. And that's what forgiveness is. Right? Okay, now i got hands going in all different directions. Yes, please. Um, is it also pride then when I think that the thing that I've done is, is so horrible? Um, because they, I'm putting myself and putting others in importance by saying that, that my sin is bigger than someone else's. Do you feel good about it when you say it? Probably not. But it, it, you might if you really pushed it. <laughs> um, you know, comparing, comparing yourself to anybody else is never a good idea. The scriptures talk about that, right? Let each man judge for his own, right? You don't know, you know, put yourself up against anybody else. So the, the cool thing is, so the positive side is, there's only one person like you in the whole universe. You're unique, and you sort it out with the Lord. And whatever Brown does, forget about what he does. I mean, you, you know, he coaches football and he shot two deer, not one two this year, okay? I mean, you're never going to live up to that. You put yourself up against that, I mean, yeah, come on. 
Uh, yeah, if you compare yourself to anybody else. See, and what will happen is, if you, you either feel good about it, mm-hmm. or you get increasingly depressed. Mm-hmm. It's worse and worse and worse. Why can't I be like that? Right? Yeah, so work it out between you and the baby Jesus. Okay? Was there a question here? No? Still okay? Mr. Marcus, thank you very much for bringing the special date nut banana bread today. Your verse comes from his son, who works at Breadsmith. When I put myself up against somebody else, <clears throat> I do it with, can I improve what I'm doing, my self-control, my anger, and be more productive and caring to somebody else? What could I do in that sense? What do you, bouncing that off you, what do you think of that thought? It's very positive, and it's the opposite of what she said. So when she compared herself to somebody else, it was to come up short. When you ask the question about comparing yourself to somebody else, it's so that you can do better. So even in our confessions, you remember, we always run this, because whenever we have a saint's day around here, there's always somebody who gets a little nervous. But you remember, in our confessions, it says, we love the saints because we live according to their example. They're great examples for us. Even Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. So that's one of the great things about having mature people, about having mentors, about you know, having old men in the congregation, having great bosses, having great coaches, having great fathers, having great people at your work. Absolutely. And the, the, most, the best thing you said was at the end, which is, it's not just that you recognize the goodness in them, but you also say to yourself, how can I be like that? How do I get that? And my answer to you, really, the first thing I would say to you is live in humility. And so how do you get humility? Go to the Eucharist. Because when you go to the Eucharist, it's this great exposure that you're nothing but given to. There's a reason we go on our knees. There's a reason we make the sign of the cross. There's a reason you know, we open our hands, empty hands. There's a reason we open our mouths so that we don't even act during the Eucharist. There's a reason we put our hands in the sign of the cross, right? There's the reason our hands are like a little manger. All this stuff is in the history of the church, you know. Make your, Chrysostom, make your hands like a little manger, receive the Christ child. You know, make your hands like the sign of the cross. Let Jesus be there again for you. But your hands are empty. All you need to go do is go to the Eucharist. You understand everything you need to know about humility and pride, which is, I'm nothing but giving to, I'm completely dependent. And then the gift is given, catechism, where there's forgiveness of sins, there's life and salvation. So first you get forgiveness, then you get everything else, including a little edge off the temper, a little boost into working harder, a little more clearly seeing that there's always one fact in somebody else's story that you don't know, so before you beat them down a little bit, you might just pause. I mean, that you can go on and on with this, right? Which is what the guy did when he wrote this long thing. Right. So now just... No, no, but, but work, back, work back four weeks where everybody gets faith, hope, and love, okay? So whether you're... Whether you're meant to be a leader or a follower, whether you're meant to be a manager, wh- whatever you're meant to be, that's a different kind of thing as opposed to whether you can love people more and more, right? Everybody has the ability to love people more and more. How that love plays out in your own life, that's what each of us have to work out. It's going to look different for you and me and Emily. We're all going to look different, right? It's going to look different for all of us. i got to go really, really quickly go. Okay, I was just thinking that one, one of the things that I think healthy is in George's statement is that uh, we're looking for the gifts as they are being manifested. Perfect. And 
Yeah, that's exactly right. They, we're looking for the gifts as they're being manifested through us, right? Through us. Through us. If we can't do it personally, right? Maybe we can put ourselves in, a, move ourselves into a position where those that do have it can benefit. Yeah, right. There's and the, the what happened. So, so last thing. What you're trying to do is get the basics down, and then how it spider webs out into your life, it's going to be different for each one of you. But the basic thing is, the greatest danger to us is pride, to turn the world upside down and believe that we're point number one, right? The greatest gift is to have our world turned back round again the way it originally was, and to wait for the consummation when that's made permanent, right? All right, thanks for coming. Uh, Wednesday night, Christmas sharing, all the rest. Love you. Let's pray. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.